0: Thank you, worship team, again, for leading us in songs of praise, focusing upon uh, our Savior and uh, the Word of God that reveals uh, our Savior to us. Uh, again, I just want, uh, I echo just uh, what Brother Vincent uh, said in the morning. I just want to express our appreciation for all you moms out there that are among us and with us. And now do you, are you a blessing to your own children. And, uh, but uh, you are a blessing to us by your example and your impact upon the church, and so we thank you uh, for your part here, and uh, so encouraging, I kind of look around, I can see uh, some of you are here with your moms, and that's great, good, good, very filial of you, uh, good stuff, all right, so love, take them out to lunch, um, I recommend barbecue, uh, no, okay, whatever the mom wants this. she gets this, uh, this day, well, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to Psalm 119, Psalm 119. i take a little break uh, from the book of Titus that we've been working through to look at, uh, to go through to Psalm 119. This is my second series that I've been kind of uh, working along on the side. And every once in a while, we'll just come back to Psalm 119 to remind us, self, remind us of the preciousness of God's Word. Uh, it's kind of an exciting time for us as a church. Uh, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be having... Uh, several different guest speakers, we're going to have our pastoral candidates for our assistant pastor's uh, positions uh, come and preach to us. Next week will be uh, Brother uh, Raymond Fung, and then uh, I think the following week uh, is the, Allinger, the missionary uh, uh, Chris Allinger. Uh, following that will be uh, another missionary, so you're going to be blessed, double missionaries. And then uh, then I think uh, at that point we have Brother Pastor, uh, well, Pastor Roger again, uh, his second official visit. So then there'll be uh, <clears throat> Pastor Raymond again after that. So there's a, got a, whole, bunch of, um, uh, a whole bunch of different guest speakers, but I uh, pray that uh, uh, hopefully as you hear the different people that speak, that you will basically hear the same thing coming from this pulpit, that it's the truth of God's word, that you realize that it's not really about the messenger who stands here. It's, it's about the message. And just prayerfully thinking about it is appreciated. Um, uh, the prayers prayed, offered this morning that it is, your, it is God's word that we want to hear. Uh, we don't want to hear from a man. We want to hear from God. What does God have to say to us? And so that's why we open the book now to Psalm 119, verses 41 through 48, that we might hear what God has to say to us today. Psalm 119, verses 41 through 48. And let's, uh, when you stand with me one more time? We don't get to do this too often. We stand for the reading God's word. It's a short little uh, passage, so I want to read it for us all together. Psalm so 119, verses 41 through 48. The psalmist writes, May your loving kindnesses also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. So I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for your ordinances. So I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed. I shall delight in your commandments, which I love, and I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes." let's pray. Father, thank you for this brief word from you and pray that your spirit would take your word and teach us, cause us to hear your word and grow in our thankfulness for the word and grow in our love for the word and cause us to grow in our love for you whose word we read and we look to now. Father, your words are the words of life and Father, we pray that it would go forth and that it would encourage and, and that it would build up and that it would uh, even regenerate and bring to light those who need to see the light of the truth of your word. We pray that <clears throat> you be glorified now. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you very much. <clears throat> If someone were to come up to you and ask you about, uh, they, they saw you, maybe out, right, you walked out of church and they see you with your, your big ginormous Bible, you're walking down the street, and they say, oh, I've always wanted to know, I've always wanted to know, that book, I know it's a Bible because you're dressed so nicely today, and it's Sunday, and uh, you just came out of that building there, and that says church, so that's a Bible, what is this book all about? What is this book all about? I've been meaning to, I tried reading it, you know, started in Genesis and then, you know, kind of book or two in, I I just got, Yeah, I didn't get it. And so I stopped. What is this book about? How would you answer that question? Those of you that are Christians, I I hope you would be able to give an answer. I'm sure if I asked for answers, I'd get a good number of very legitimate answers about what this book, the Bible, is all about. You may say, well, this is a book about God. You might say, this is a book about Jesus Christ. You could say, this book is about God's plan of salvation. It's about the people of God. It's about the glory of God. But here's one answer that you could give. The Bible is about God's promise and provision of salvation to sinful mankind through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would look through the Bible, I I believe you would find this theme throughout God's promise made reiterated time and time again beginning from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the Bible promises made to the uh, to the patriarchs promises made to the kings promises made to the Israel the Israelites the people of God promises then made to the through the prophets prophet promises then realized in the birth and coming of Jesus Christ and his eventually life his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the grave. And in, through, and so do, and in that person, in that moment of, of, of his death on the cross, he paid for the penalty of all the sins of mankind. I hope as Christians you can see this theme. God's word is a revelation to us. It's a revelation of his promise to provide salvation for us. And it's a revelation of His fulfillment of that promise to mankind through His Son, the Lord Jesus. Understanding and resting upon this promise is essential to our salvation. If you read the book, you can read it for many reasons. Some people read it for literature. It is wonderful literature. It's excellent literature. You ever take a college course about the Bible as literature, you would find that it is beautiful. It is also a book of Very good, practical, moral advice. You follow the principles that Jesus taught during his days. And if you follow them, you would find that they are generally a good practice for your life. To do unto others. You would have them do unto you. To forgive. These are good things. But the book, this book, is more than these things. If you read only those things, you're missing out on what this book is about. This book is about the promise and provision of salvation for sinful mankind through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And when we grasp this truth when we're about the book and we, see, we look at the book, read the book, with that, this big picture in mind, ultimately it causes us to see the great God behind our salvation. You are, we are amazed that this book of 66, we call it 66 smaller books within this book, written by some uh, 40 different authors over in three different languages over 2,000 years, uh, three different continents. Uh, all these books, they, t- they all speak about the same subject and they all tie together. They do not contradict and they bring glory to the God who orchestrated all. No man could derive, make this book up. Only God could make this book and God has made this book And when we realize this, it affects our attitude. It should affect our attitude toward this book. But sometimes, as those who live in a country that's free, uh, as live in a country who's pretty wealthy, we probably have at least five different copies of the Bible in our home. Uh, One for our car, one for each of our bathrooms, one for every living room, and then, you know, one just on the coffee table. We take this book for granted. I sometimes take it for granted. familiarity with it just makes us think that it's not as important, or we can get to it at a later point, but I pray that this morning's message will remind us, and Psalm 119 does this for us, is that encourage us, us, the people of God, to love God's Word, to delight in God's Word, as we, when we particularly remember what this book is about. It's a revelation of God's promise and provision of salvation, our salvation from sin a, sin, a sin that we can do nothing about through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, so we look at Psalm 119 this morning, and we will see the, this particular theme, this, this theme to love God's word because it is a promise and provision of salvation. This 119th psalm that we look at this morning is uh, familiar to us. We've kind of covered it before. It has the theme of the Word of God, and it is the longest psalm in all of the the Bible. It's uh, some -some, 160-some verses, I believe, approximately, 22 stanzas of eight verses each. So I guess uh, do my math. That's 176. Anyways, it's an acrostic psalm. Uh, You know what acrostic is? It kind of goes through the different alphabets. There's 22 Hebrew letters. Uh, and so, with each stanza, every verse, at least in the original Hebrew, begins with that part- particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So now we are on the sixth stanza, and so the, it begin, every verse in the sixth stanza, verses forty-one through forty-eight, begin with the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And I think your Bibles will probably tell you that uh, it's either called Wow, W A W, Wow, or Vav. Vav, and you you can ask Pastor Roger which one's the correct pronunciation later, okay, but these uh, nerdy Hebrew, you know, language scholars, they like to debate, it's Vav, no, it's Wow, okay, so, but I I like Wow because, well, that's what I learned when I was in seminary, Uh, but I noticed my Bible now puts Vav, oh well, Uh, you know, hey, so anyways, every letter, every, uh, it's Sometimes when I look at the Hebrew letter, wow, it kind of it reminds me of just like a, a, a parenthesis, sort of. It just looks like that. But this, uh, this sixth stanza is a prayer. It's a prayer. In fact, you could say the whole psalm is a prayer. It's the it's it's psalmist talking to God. It's a prayer. and he's pr- But he's particularly praying for deliverance here in this stanza. And, he, and as he prays for deliverance, he realizes what, he's confident in God's deliverance, and he just busts out in, in a love. So I love. He loves God's word. And what's kind of neat, too, is uh, in the sixth stanza that in verses 44 to 48, what stands out is a series of of basically promises that the psalmist will make. Uh, I know our translation don't translate that way. It's a little more sophisticated. But in a very basic way, one can translate from verse 44 and 48. You can begin with simply, and I will, 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 five times. As promises that the psalmist makes in light of the sure promise and provision of salvation that, is, that God has for him. And so uh, we look at the, then at this psalm. We've read it already. We're going to see two parts of the psalmist's prayer this morning that encourage us to love God's word. Uh, and I know it's kind of a message. We're at San Francisco Bible Church, and so it is, uh, I, I trust you already love God's Word, but uh, sometimes we just need a, a little encouragement to continue to love God's Word. Uh, we're probably preaching to the choir a little bit this morning, and so that may, therefore I expect a lot more amens from you. Okay, and our guest's like, oh, man, they're going to say amen here? Like, no, we don't really. It's not, like, not that kind of church. But you can say amen if you want. Yeah, anybody wants to say amen when you hear something really true and of God's word, just go ahead and say it, and uh, that would be awesome. All right, two parts of the psalmist prayer. Let's get into the text then. First part, the first part of the p- psalmist prayers we find is that a prayer of trust in God's word. And first, the psalmist prays and expresses his trust in God's word. Now, recall here, uh, he's, the psalmist recalls here the promises of God and his word. And he asked the Lord to fulfill God's promises. He says in verse 41, May your loving kindnesses also come to me, your salvation according to your word. He's really asking, God, bring, cause your loving kindness to come to me. Show your, bring your, cause your salvation to come to me according to your word. And there are, <clears throat> this is a request, this is a prayer request. <clears throat> two parallel terms kind of stand out for us here. The, the first is loving kindnesses, loving kindnesses. And the second is salvation. They're two parallel terms. Uh, I like that love word, loving kindness, at least in the NAS it's translated loving kindness. I think some of your translations have love, loyal love, faithful love, covenant love. But love is generally the, the most common translation of it. It's some form of love. This word is the Hebrew word kesed, um, it, uh, and it's, I only say that just because it is a significant Hebrew word. It's like, it's like koinonia or like uh, charis. Uh, these are just common uh, agape. These are just words that in the, the, re, the original languages, are, they come into our English language, and this word kesed is one of those words. It is one of the most theologically significant words in the Bible, one of the most theologically significant words in the Bible. It appears uh, 250 times, uh, over 250 times in the Old Testament. It's an Old Testament word. It appears seven times here in Psalm 119. Verse 41 is the first time that uh, the psalmist uses it. <clears throat> the first time we actually see this word used in the Bible is in Genesis 19.19. 19. And Genesis and I won't go into too much detail, but it's, a, it's used by Lot. Remember, Lot was living in Sodom and God was going to destroy Sodom. But God, out of his compassion for Lot and because of Abraham as well, because Lot found favor in God's sight, the Lord, through two angels, rescued Lot from Sodom and told him to flee. <clears throat> when Lot... Lot uses uh, this word, uh, loving kindness. You have shown your loving kindness to me, and you have saved me. There we find um, the first time the association of this word, loving kindness, with deliverance, with salvation. God's loving kindness leads to deliverance, or is equated with deliverance, salvation. It's because it's God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham and his descendants. Uh, one scholar writes concerning this word: What kind of word is this? That it's a basically it's a kind of love that includes mercy, where the object is in a pitiful state. It's a love and mercy for someone that's in a pitiful state. You know, it's great. It's easy to love someone. You know that you know, like your your spouse or your, some of your your boyfriend girlfriend that you are completely enamored with them. It's easy to love your your children. You know, they they're just like just so adorably cute, or your grandchildren, congrats to some of you out there who have had grandchildren recently. It's just easy, but when it's somebody or something that is pitiful, let's just say even ugly, almost disgusting, it's a whole other thing to love them love those that are unlovable those that you don't may not like you may not be comfortable with but that's the kind of love that god shows towards you and me we who are in a very pitiful state we who were created in the image of god but because of the curse of sin corrupted our beings our souls so that every thought, every deed was tainted by sin. All that we do, even the best that we do, is tainted by our sin nature, by a selfishness, a self-serving nature. We all do things basically for ourselves. This word defines God's love, God's oftentimes God's loyal love. It's a love because that he shows unconditionally because of his. Promise, his covenant promises that he promised to Abraham, and so he does this. He promised to Adam and Eve, and so he does what he does. He promises to David, and so he does what he does. He promises to the people of God, and so he does what he does. Loving kindness is associated with salvation, and that's our second term. It's simply the the most common word for salvation a, a deliverance from any danger. The psalmist here is particularly asking for not salvation in the sense of spiritual salvation, like salvation from sin. He's, so far as we've been reading the psalm, he's looking for salvation from his enemies. People who are reproaching him, who are looking down upon him. Verse 22 talks about, he mentions that they reproach him. Verse 23 talks about how even rulers and kings, princes, are talking against him. Verse Later on, uh, the 161, 161st verse he describes how those same princes are persecuting him without cause. They're threatening his life. And so he calls for help from God. But in his, his prayer here, he calls to God, he prays to God, and it's not just a groundless hope. He's not just, oh, Lord, I, just, uh, I, I cast myself at your mercy. It's not a groundless hope, and it's where that God doesn't really have to help him at all. But he casts himself upon God who is a solid rock of help that he knows for sure he will get help from because God has promised to help him. God has promised to save. God has promised so in his word. He's calling upon God to save because God has promised to save. And his unfailing, God's unfailing love guarantees it. So that's why he calls, may your loving kindnesses, that's God's faithful love, come to me. May you show all your loving kindnesses to me. Every day in our lives, God shows his loving kindnesses to us. Does he not promise to, to feed us, to, to clothe us, to give us what we need? He says, he says look at the birds that they have. more, look at the flowers, they're clothed. Will I not give to you, who are his, his people, all that you need? He may not give us all what we want, but God always gives us what we need. And we receive love, this love and kindnesses, and we've received salvation as well, just as the psalmist does. The aim of his prayer is expressed in the first part of verse thirty-two, forty-two. So he's praying uh, for deliverance. He's praying for deliverance from his enemies. And then he expresses his aim in this prayer. Why does call ask for this prayer? Verse 42, So I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. Even as he, he wants to be delivered from his enemies, He is also thinking about God's glory and God's honor. He says, so I will have an answer to the guy who reproaches me, who makes a mockery of what I hold to, what I believe regarding you. The reproaches and mockery of his enemies call into question God's word. But God's deliverance will answer the psalmist's opponents. The psalmist is committed to God. He's committed to God's word. He knows that God will provide an answer. And he knows that I will have an answer to all those who are reproaching me, all those who are saying, mocking me for my belief in, in a God that's invisible, that doesn't even have a, his own idol, but he's an invisible God. He's, a, he's, a, he's something that where it's all the gods of that in those days had their own idols that you could make. It could at least be symbolized by a rock, a symbolized by a mountain, symbolized at least by the sky in some way, but not this God, a God of no imagery. God who dwelt in clouds pillars of fire clouds of uh, pillars of clouds this is the god whom he worships the psalmist and he is committed to this god he knows he will answer because he trusts in god's word he trusts in god the psalmist prayer of trust continues in verse 43 he says and do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth for i wait for your ordinances He realizes that in his flesh he is going to be tempted to doubt God's word. That is, the the word of truth is going to be snatched out of his mouth in a sense. He's going to somehow stop speaking forth God's truth. He's going to stop saying, oh, I, I, I don't believe. He's going to be tempted to say he doesn't believe that truth, or at least not to speak of that truth. We do the same thing. We're tempted to do the same thing when skeptics question our own faith, don't we? When people challenge you about your faith, when they ask you if God is real, well, why does He just show Himself? Why is there so much evil in the world? Why does He allow this or that? Well, why does He advocate that in the Bible? How do you know that is true? And then, isn't your faith just a crutch? Fair questions from the, to the average person. But even the most sincere questions, according to the Bible, these questions from skeptics, from those who, who doubt, who challenge us, are really smokescreens for their suppression of truth in their unrighteousness, according to Paul in Romans. Really, because they, they doubt, they deny, they call, they call into question the words of truth because they themselves have denied that truth in their own lives. They've denied the truth of God's word and it skews their whole worldview. And so when they, they ask these questions, because in their worldview, none of, these things really sincerely, and I think for most of them are sincere, it really doesn't make sense to them. But whereas you, as a Christian, you start off with a different worldview. You start off with a trust in God's word. Not because you figured it out, but because God revealed it to you. God opened your minds. He, he caused you to see the light of the truth in God's word. And because you start off with a a recognition of the truth of God's word, it shapes your whole worldview. You see this world in a different light. And when you look at the scriptures, you see how it all fits together, how there are answers to those questions. Really, the ultimate question is which worldview matches up with the reality? Which worldview matches up with the world that we live in? The psalmist knows the truth, and he prays to God to keep him from doubting, because he waits for God's word. The answer may come to him sooner or later, but he knows the answer from God will come. He will patiently wait for his ordinances for God's word. For the worshiper of God, our trust, too, must be in God's word. When skeptics, when those who come and reproach us for our faith, they say and they laugh or mock at what you believe, that's a time for us to cry out to God for deliverance, that he would cause us to stand, to keep trusting in his word, to wait on his word. In the New Testament, Peter, the apostle Peter, makes a very similar point in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. I want to read this whole passage for you. Because of uh, these same principles are reflected in, the, in Peter's words in 2 Peter 3. This is now, Peter writes, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So there, verse 2, really, or 1-2 saying, Remember the word of God. Remember the word of God spoken by in the Old Testament by the prophets. Remember the word of God in the New Testament spoken by the Lord by the apostles and spoken uh, that that came from the teaching of the Lord, Lord and Savior. So remember God's word. Verse three. Know this first of all that in the last day mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, "Where is the promise of his coming?" For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So here 3 and 4 tells us that mockers will come. There will always be people who have a different, start off with a different starting point. They deny the existence of God, and, and that skews everything about their worldview. They don't believe that God will reveal himself in the book, and so they don't accept these truths. And they will mock, and they'll question, well, you, this, you tell me he's supposed to come. Where has he come? It's been 2,000 years now, people will say, since he's gone. Are you sure he's coming back? We read on, verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. See, God's word here, <clears> or <throat> oh, when they doubt when they mock they basically don't understand the word of god they fail to see basically these things that the word of god reveals they fail to see that the world is a testimony to god's existence that he created this world from the very beginning they fail to see that god that the fact that this world isn't being destroyed this world isn't being destroyed is also god's hand They fail to see that this world is being reserved for a future judgment. And that's according to God's word as well. See, God's word alone is a sure foundation for the lives that we live on earth. When mockers arise, we are told to hold on and remember the truth of God's word. For by God's word, we know that mockers will come. By God's word, we know this world was made. By God's word, this world was destroyed by flood. By God's word, word, this world is reserved for that future judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And most importantly of all, brothers and sisters, most importantly of all, you know, you know that we have the promise of salvation from sin through Jesus Christ. This book tells us of how the Son of God came in the form of a helpless baby to born and, and to live. And he, eventually that babe grew up to be a man and he died on the cross for our sins. And But he didn't stay in the grave though he was buried. He rose from that grave on that third day. And he rose from the grave all according to the scriptures as promised and to justice, for our justification. His death on the cross provided salvation for all men, for all of us. And that should cause us to keep trusting in his word when mockers come, when those who reproach, when others reproach us for our faith. Our, and they should also produce in us gratitude, the gratitude for his loving kindness and salvation. That gratitude is a motivation for us to keep trusting in God, keep trusting in his word. The whole world may mock us. But our trust is going to be in God's word that is true, the revelation of our salvation through Jesus Christ. See, the psalmist is confident in this. He makes his prayer for God to deliver him from his enemies. And he's confident that God will show love and kindness, will deliver him to salvation as he promised. So in verses 44 through 48, the psalmist flows into a series of promises with regard to his commitment and love for God's word find our second part of the psalmist's prayer that encourages us to love God, love God's word. And it's a promise that the psalmist makes to love God's word. In the original Hebrew, I've already told you, each letter, verse begins with the letter wow, plus the uh, first-person singular imperfect verb. And you can ask Pastor Roger that again, what that is. Uh, but just just know that there's a, there's a parallel structure here. And they could almost translate it as, and I will. And I will. Five statements, five promises that the psalmist makes with regards to the word of God that are examples for you and me today. We'll try to go through these, each of them, uh, quickly. Verse 44, the psalmist promises. He says, and I will keep your word. So I will keep your law continually forever and ever. Here is a promise to obey God's word. We've seen this in different places already. We already we've seen it in one place already in Psalm 119. In verse 17, when the psalmist wrote, deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Verse 67, he's gonna write the same thing. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 101, I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. The psalmist desires and promises to keep God's word. This is really a promise to obey God's word. But he adds three adverbs to this commitment to obey. He says, I will keep your word continually. I will keep your word forever. I will keep your word and ever. Not just forever, but continuing even beyond forever is the idea. It's really just a, it's an idiom. It says forever and ever is a good translation. For those who know God's love, the natural response to this to, to his promise to love his salvation, to love his loving kindness, is that we would love him back, right? First John 4:16, we love because he first loved us, right? We love him back because he loved us. But how does that love show? How do we show our love to God? Jesus said, "If anyone loves me, he will keep my word." John 14:23. So when we obey God's word, when we want to keep God's word, it's an act of love. It's motivated by love hopefully, none of us are obeying God because, well, oh, I have to. I'm <laughs> uh, sure not. I hope because, oh, man, I want to. You know, uh, today's Mother's Day, uh, and uh, I'm thankful for the moms in my life. Thank you for, thankful for my own mother. I passed away many years ago, but I always remember uh, a lot of things she would just simply tell me. Uh, Mother's Day, she would say something like, uh, Oh, uh, and what do you want, mom? I want to, you know. As I got a little older, I wanted to give her something. I want to spend my hard-earned money buy her something. And you know what? She would always just ask me to do. You no, know, I, I don't want anything. You know. you know. She'd say it in Chinese, of course. But you know, um, all I want is you to uh, be obedient and listen to me and, and just be good boy. You know, that's the one thing I can't be. <laughs> no, uh, no, but and and I, you know, I just totally get that. I mean, I, like, oh, man. See, if I love her, I will obey her. I'll follow her instructions. I want to please her. How much more with God? How much more with God? Uh, sometimes we have a tendency among younger believers, we, we kind of react to any call to obedience. Well, we're real, we all know about being saved by grace. But soon you say, well, God's word says this. You should obey him. Uh, you should, the Bible says you should pray. The Bible says that you should uh, be a, a faithful in witnessing to others. And was, oh, no, that's legalism. Hold on a second. <laughs> that's not legalism, okay? That's just what the Bible says. It's just asking you, telling God says, I would like you to do this. We, um, we react to it. It's not legal. Really, obeying God's word from the heart of love is not legalism. It's just, it's love. You know, what use is it as us for us as a church? If we study, we know God's Word. We spend a 45 minutes, hour listening to somebody talk about the Bible, and we just think, oh, that was nice. Oh, yeah, that was great. Man, um, that's useless. It's no use unless we go out and act upon the Word, live according to the Word. If we don't act upon it or follow it, James says, we're like a man who looks in the mirror, and then we walk away, we forgot what we looked like. James 1, 23, 24. But I really like the one illustration attributed to Greek philosopher Epictetus. Oh, we don't have time, but it's so good I've got to use it. <laughs> I, I, I usually use it to our ETC on Friday, but uh, it's, this illustration can be used in multiple places. Epictetus, uh, a Greek philosopher, scholar, uh, basically wanted to teach his disciples the importance of acting upon the truths he was teaching them and not just basically uh repeating and repeating what he said this is probably and so he's called his disciples to him he says have you ever noticed that a sheep does not vomit up the grass it ate at the feet of the shepherd in order to impress him the sheep digests it to produce wool and milk i love that illustration right it's like oh that's so good you know if a sheep came up after if i feed fed my sheep uh, grass and i took them out to pasture that is and then they came up to me and they uh, all over i like (laughs) This sheep is messed. This sheep is something's wrong with this sheep. Get it out of here. Let's kill it. And let's eat it. Um, <laughs> actually I probably want something wrong with that that sheep. No, we want a sheep that will eat the grass and then produce wool, produce milk. will act upon what we feed them. And that's what we want. We don't want Christians to intake the Bible and then oh, I believe this. That's, I mean, you should be able to recur- You should be able to say what you believe. True. But we got to live according. We have to be people who show love. Not just say, well, we're about love, but then we don't show love. Or we're about praying and reading the Bible, but, oh, we don't pray and we don't read the Bible. we would be hypocrites. We need to be people who live and keep God's word. All right, that's, uh, that's great. A point well, uh, points made there. The second thing that Psalmist promises is, that I will walk in your word. I will walk in your word. Verse 45, I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. Uh, this word walk basically has the same figurative meaning of return, referring to one's way of living. Uh, how do we live? How do we walk? Well, first of all, when we were sinners, when we, when we were all dead in sin, we walked in slavery to sin. Uh, but when God saved us, we begin to walk freely. Uh, we walk free from sin the psalmist uses a very interesting description to describe his walk that's free from sin. He says, I will walk at liberty. Uh, the NAS translates at liberty, but it's a really cool kind of literal word that means simply, I will walk in a wide, roomy area, okay? <laughs> like, hmm, <clears throat> I, I get this. I went to uh, Disneyland not too long ago. Uh, it is, it's a big place, but it is not a wide, roomy area, it is a crowded everywhere you go. It is a, it is, it is, a, yeah. It's not that. Sometimes it's not so happy. Okay, but the psalmist says he will walk when because of his the word of God because of the salvation he has he's going to walk with a wide room. He has room for his elbows. Can walk around. He can walk around like this, you know. Oh, and not bump into a soul. He'll be happy, and that that was, sounds pretty good to me. He will not be enslaved, basically. The idea is he walks freely. That's why N.A.S. trans is at liberty. He's not enslaved to anything. He's, not, he's free. Free to do what? He's free to seek God's precepts to live by. I will walk at liberty for I seek your precepts. He's free to seek God's commands, God's word, to live by them, to walk by them. You know, in our wicked world today, our fallen world today, people talk about freedom. They want choice. They want the freedom to be able to divorce their spouse for no reason. They want freedom to be able to abort their child. They want freedom to live their own lifestyle. They want the freedom from any kind of religion in the public square. But they do not know that they are entrenching themselves deeper into a worldview that is consistent with a slavery to sin. God's word tells us that true freedom and liberty come through God's word. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8, 31-32. As you and I, brothers and sisters, have received the promise of God's salvation, let us make sure that we walk in the word, according to his word. Let's use our freedom, not for licentious, not for more sin, but that we would seek God's word and strive to live by them, to walk by it, because God saved us so that we might have, be at liberty, we might not be afraid. We might walk freely and live God's word out. There's a third promise that the psalmist makes, and he says, I will speak of your word. I will also speak of your testimonies, verse 46, before kings, <clears throat> and shall not be ashamed. He basically vows to speak boldly of God's word, wherever, he, even if it's before rulers and kings. In those days, kings and rulers, they had great power. They had the power of life and death. You can't just go up and say to the king, I don't like you. They could kill you. That's why it makes our country so great. You have that freedom. But the psalmist says he will not be ashamed of God's word. He's going to speak of God's word to kings even. In a world that is increasingly opposed to God, committed to their secular worldview, biblical truths that we hold to, that the Bible teaches, that God's word says, are in basically in opposition to what the world believes. I think we, uh, we don't have to go too far. Just think about any one or two things, truths that the Bible teaches, that the world would just laugh at you about. I'll let you. That's a good project. Good family discussion. What are some things that we believe in the Bible that the world rejects? And when we come to, when we, and there's not just more one or two. I'd made a simple list here. I had like six things. I'm like, oh man, just those six get me in deep trouble if I would just talk about them publicly in a, in, a, in a, my workplace, or if I was at school, or if I was in a in the public square. Those are things that the Bible says that just are not. Acceptable by this world set standards, but we are not to be ashamed. We are to speak God's word, like the psalmist promised to speak. Verse uh, Romans one sixteen says, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek." Brothers, and sisters, let us speak God's word because God's promise of salvation is true. Right? He's promised it. He's provided it. It's, we know in the end, in eternity, that's what's really going to matter. It's not, it's not our, our, our political views. It's not about you know, just any number of things that we hold, that we talk and that we disagree in this world about. What, happen, what matters in eternity is where each, one, where each person stands with their creator God who has revealed himself in his word that salvation is through forgiveness. He makes forgiveness and salvation possible through his son, Jesus Christ. And everyone who believes his son in his son has eternal life. But everyone who rejects his son will not see life. And that's what matters. And let's make sure we, we are not ashamed to speak that. Fourthly, the psalmist says he promises that I will delight in your word. He says, I will delight in your word. Verse 47, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. Uh, literally, it's I will delight myself in your commandments. Uh, so there's a, there's a kind of a, he's gonna find joy in himself about these things. Now, author used the verb two other times in the, in the psalm. He's, verse 16, he used it. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. And verse 70, their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. See, the psalmist's joy, this delight is really a sense of, where's his joy at? His joy is in God's commandments, in God's word. Not just knowing them, but studying them, meditating upon them, acting upon them even. And at the end of the verse, you notice, he describes the commandments as those which the author loves. He says, which I love. I want to delight in your commandments, these commandments which I love. I love these commandments. He has strong affections for the word because they are God's words. Can we say that we love God's word? When I was in seminary 20 plus years ago, um... uh, My mother would write to me letters. She'd write to me recipes. I I, I used to ask for recipes because I miss home cooking, so I wanted to cook it. But uh, she'd write me letters, and I still have most of those letters. You know, she's gone now. But they're precious to me because I I just reread them recently too. So, Uh, man. And in them, in her very broken English, she, she had like a fifth grade, fourth grade education uh, that was in um, in China. <laughs> and then when she came to the States, she had to become a citizen, try to learn English, pass the you know the, the citizen's exam. Uh, so her, her English was very limited. But in her, she'd write, you know, before, she didn't you know how to she'd write, handwrite it, back, you know, on a, on a maybe usually two-sided, one page. And just reading again, I was reminded uh, of how much she would often write. She'd say, oh, um, you know, she'd write words basically same thing she'd always tell me. I want you to eat the right foods. You know. I want you to make sure you, uh, oh, here's some money. Uh, Mom, Dad, give me money. Take, go out and eat some yummy food. Um, I want to, I, uh, don't worry about us. Uh, we're doing fine here. Um, and then she would tell me, uh, we're praying for you. You know, it's just a scrap of paper, 20-some years old. Man, I I delight in those words when I read them. Do I really need to know that my mom loves me? I guess I don't need to. But those words, when they reflect uh, the love of our mothers, uh, they're treasures to us. I delight in those words because they are her words. How much more when we have the word of God there's a revelation from our Heavenly Father and in a very similar way is a love letter to us. He says yeah, loves us. He says, hey, make sure you eat well. Eat the word. Drink this milk. Make sure you are uh, taking care of yourself. Exercise the spiritual disciplines. Here's a gift. My son, Jesus Christ. Make sure you use them. Believe upon him so that you'll be well. And, we should, and this book is from him. We should delight in his love for us. Do we enjoy God's word? Do you enjoy God's word? Do you treasure the word of God? Do we want? If we treasure it, we want to read it, memorize it. We want to think about it. We study it, listen to it, meditate on it. We don't want to tell about it to others things we delight in, right? We, well, we delight in a lot of things. We delight in our spouse, our children, our favorite movie or show, a, a favorite basketball team that's playing today, a favorite restaurant. We would, we'll gladly talk about these things. We'll, we'll tell each other about the things we delight in. Oh, you've got to try this place. It's fab. <laughs> no, it, how much more with the word of God if we delight in it? it tell others about it, and yet sometimes we're ashamed. Fifth and lastly, uh, the psalmist says, and I will reflect on your word. He promised to reflect on God's word. Verse 48, and I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. You know, this, uh, many commentators disagree, differ on what is meant by this phrase, I will lift up my hands to your commandments. First of all, just to state it clearly, there is... The psalmist would have probably reflected. This is actually physically what he would do. He would lift up his hands to the, to God's word. Okay, uh, but is it what does that act of lifting up his hands to before God's word, after reading or hearing of God's word, what does that actually mean? Does it is it an act of worship? So we, they would you know hear the word of God read in the temple perhaps, and then they would lift up their hands as they uh, pra- uh, to that. Is it a posture of prayer as they, they lift up their hands in response to, to the Word of God and, and prayer pray uh, kind of in response to the Word? Is it a lifting up of hands as a symbolic of like, uh, I'm going to receive your Word and I'm going to act upon it, I'm going to do something with it, I'm ready to receive this Word and I'm going to do, I'm going to act, I'm going to obey it? Uh, so, you know, kind of different commentators have all uh, these kind of different uh, uh, interpretations of that. I believe that what is meant here is basically then uh, as I, by my uh, point here is that it means a prayerful reflection it 's a, it's a prayer first and foremost. Uh, we see in the, the Bible that lifting up of hands is a symbol, a gesture of prayer, uh, so you know they would lift up their hands in prayer in the new testament first Timothy two eight for instance uh, kind of uses that to raise I want the men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands. And uh, it's not just, it, it is figurative that our lives would be pure and holy, but it would be accompanied that in the practice by lifting up of hands. Now, we don't know exactly if they lift it this way or that way. People debate that, but, you know, the idea is that we lift our hands. You know, we lift our hands to God. We're directing it towards the one. And, and this is, his, the psalmist directing his prayers to go towards, in response to God's commandments, to his word. It's in response to it. It's concerning God's commands. On account of God's commands. And again, he says, these commands which he loves. He prayerfully meditates on God's word. Kind of like Psalm 1. That's one of my favorite psalms. And uh, I put it up, but I'm not going to have time to read it. So I'll just kind of, Psalm 1, 1 to 3. The man's delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. Day and night. Uh, what brings it home for us is that there's that parallel, parallel state, statement at the end of verse 48. He not only will he lift up his hands to God's commandments, which he loves, but he will then meditate on the statutes. So he's praying. The word of God might have been read in the public, in the public uh, gathering of the people. It would have been read. He would have lifted up his hands in prayer, and he would have meditated, reflected upon God's statutes. That's what I believe is reflected here. And uh, that's what we ought to do. Not necessarily the lifting of hands, but the prayerful reflection upon God's word. We spend a lot of time studying God's word. I spend a lot of time studying God's word. Reading it, listening to it, uh, trying to understand, wrestling with it, digging into the, the, the original languages. We spend a lot of time just intaking God's word. But how much time do we spend reflecting prayerfully on God's word? Is it a 50-50 kind of ratio? It's not even close, is it? We might spend 20 hours on studying a text, well, pastors at least, and maybe one hour in all praying about the text. When probably we would do much better just to reflect upon the text, to reflect on God's word. To lift up our hands to God and asking him for comprehension of the word. Asking him for conviction of the word. That we might live by God's word. Well, that concludes, that leads us to our conclusion really. And uh, we're out of time. But simply this. The psalmist is written in these eight verses about his prayer for God to deliver him from his enemies. And he knows his confidence that God's promise and provision of salvation is guaranteed. And that promise from God, that provision of salvation, produces in the the worshiper of God a love for God's word, because this word reveals it to us. Brothers and sisters, those of you who have received the promise, heard the promise, have received the provision of God's word, will you respond and love God's word? Will you love this word, this book, Will you be like the psalmist uh, and imitate his example that you will be, that you will love God's word? Do you love God's word? If you love God, you'll love God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and pray, Father, that for us, that as you, We want to praise you and thank you for the salvation that you richly provide for us in Jesus Christ that is revealed in your word. Lord, thank you for promising it to us. Thank you for providing it to us in your perfect time. And Lord, we know that your word is, contains this, these gospel truths. We pray that we would never be ashamed of it. And though the mockers may come and and make and mock what we believe, they may question whether you are real. They may question why we even believe But, Lord, we know why we believe. Our trust is in you and your word. You have made yourself known to us. And, Father, our confidence is in you, and we love you. We love your word. Father, help us to grow in that love. Help us to to manifest, uh, to reflect our love for you. That we would not just study and, and read and hear your word and receive your word, but that we would act upon it and we live it out. That we would tell others about the salvation, the great salvation that is found within this book. That we have come to know that others may know too and come to believe and have the same joy. Because they have been reunited, reconciled to their creator. Thank you, Father, for making this possible through your son. Thank you for this book. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, Amen.